Welcome to Kashmir on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashmir Magazine. And tonight's show is going to be a little different than, than usual in some ways. Uh, hopefully, we'll be very successful. There's a lot of very interesting inf- information I'm going to be giving you with a lot of things that you'll never find out any other way. But I have to be very careful because in my position, things come across the desk. And I have to know them for my purposes to help the, 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 con- the community. And I have to sometimes get involved in situations that are very important to help the community. And I don't usually write about it. And, I, and sometimes I can't talk about it here on the radio show. So nobody knows about it. And even my own family doesn't know about it. But tonight, I had so much happen in this past week. I, I felt I have to let a little bit out. But I can't tell you the contents of what's going on. So we're going to try to touch base on a couple of issues and give you a little peek behind the, the closed doors, so to speak. Not that you're not going to understand what I'm saying, but that I can't give you all the information. Names are out of the picture. Specifics have to leave out the the picture. I'm not going to read to you the texts of the different emails and things. I'm going to just give you a little bit orally. That's why it's a little bit different also. One of the things that I've been working on for, for a while now, a couple of weeks, is goji berries. And uh, goji berries, personally, I don't even know what a goji berry tastes like. I don't think I've ever seen a real live goji berry. Uh, but most of them, are, you know, I've, I've, I've seen the pictures, and goji berries is a big thing today. It's one of the superfoods. You know, there's some foods that if you take them, we guarantee you live to 190. And if you take two of them, you can live to 350. So th- that's the new superfoods. There's about 10 of them, I think, out there now. And people get excited about it. Some other countries, they figure they, they lived a long life over there, so we'll live a long life here too. That's what, ha- that's what goes on in people's minds. So goji berries is one of these. And uh, the way you take care of goji berries is basically you, you don't eat them raw. I think it's always dried. Because I, they're in another country, by the time they would come here, they would be shot. So what they do is they dry it. There's different methods of drying goji berries. Uh, I'm not even familiar with the different companies, what they do, but I know there's different methods of of drying them. And I also know that some of the goji berries that are processed in a certain plant are basically absolutely free of insects. But what's been happening, and I only heard about it since November, uh, the last few days of November we became aware of this, that uh, there was a, a goji berry problem major goji berry problem first people i heard from was earth kosher they're the ones who came to me first about it and it was really really just happening then and now everybody's caught on to this problem and goji berries basically is almost out the door for the from person so um the problem is that most of the goji berries are coming from this other plants who where they have insects that get into the goji berries Uh, maybe it's loose in the bag, I don't know, but they're in the bag. I was told the number by the people who work in this field. A couple of people told me the same numbers. They're approximately, they're finding approximately 50 insects per bag. That's phenomenal. You know, not one in a, 
and 50 or 100 goji berries, but in the bag of goji berries, which doesn't look too big, I've seen these bags, they, it's, it's um, you're talking about 50, on the average, 50 insects. It's an astronomical amount. And obviously, it gets into the things, it sticks to the, the berries, and you have a tremendous problem right there. So what happened is most of the hashgachas, in fact, I would say all of them, but I don't really want to say all because I don't know of everybody, but I would say that basically everybody has disavowed themselves with the goji berries. Out the window. But what happened here is an interesting thing. This is, this, this is what got me thinking about this whole problem, and I'll tell you how I, what I did, which I actually mentioned briefly before, and I'll tell you a little bit what's happening now. So that, uh, all of the hashgachas have basically said, even if our name is on it, even if our kosher symbol is on it, you can't use it. The OU went a little bit different. Uh, I don't know exactly the, the history there, I, I was discussing it with them recently, and I'm going to share with you a little bit about what went on with the, with the OU. The OU has on their website, they publicly released it. I don't know if it's printed in the papers yet. I don't really read that many of the papers, so I don't really know. I work off uh, things that come to me from the uh, press releases from the different cashless agencies, so I don't have to deal with, I don't deal with the papers and looking, cutting it out and <laughs> tasting it on the board or something. We we put it together in Cashless Magazine, you got everything there. We put it together monthly on the Cashless Monthly, and then we put it into Cashless Magazine for what, five times a year. So that's how we deal with it. But it seems that the goji berries, the OU has a protocol. Uh, I, don't, I have it actually over here, here. This you could find in their website, even now. And you could, uh, it, it's interesting. Here's what it says. Goji berry products may have a, a concern of toil, may have a concern of toiloyim. The Orthodox Union recommends that consumers check goji berries carefully, even if certified by the OU in the following manner. Now, when I read this to you, you could faint. Because there's not a single person out there, I think, except the qualified mashkiach who's ready to do this procedure. But this is what they're recommending. Place the goji berries in sealed, clear plastic container with lukewarm water. That's not so hard. Agitate vigorously. How vigorously? How vigorously do you need? It hurts me to shake it so much. <laughs> Place the berries in a colander under a heavy spray of lukewarm water from the sink while shaking the berries. Now you gotta have the, the water running and the shaking going on at the same time. Okay, I think so far, most of us could handle this one, although we're not so sure about how much to shake, how vigorously, how agitate, we don't get it completely, but okay, so far we're good. Then the next thing is, place the berries again in a sealed container with lukewarm water and agitate vigorously. No, that wasn't the mistake. You have to do the whole procedure a second time. <laughs> you know, they always make you fun of me when I was talking about the, doing the grape, the whole procedure about the grapes two, three times. But here the OU was saying you got to do this two times with the, um, with the water and then the shaking and then, and then washing it under the faucet and then put it in the water again and shake it again. Okay. Then afterwards, you put the container on top of a light box and you inspect the water for insects. I mean, I hope 
you know what an insect looks like. And I hope you can see it. And it's very hard in water to see these things. And the berries are there. I hope they're not blocking anything. But this is what you're supposed to do. That's one possibility. The other one, and it says, oh, yeah, there's more stuff here. The container should not be overloaded. Only a modest amount of berries should be placed into the container at once. So to get your bag of goji berries ready to eat, it's going to take several shots at it with the double uh, soaking and shaking and washing and soak and shaking again, soaking again and shaking again and checking the light box. You got to do it a couple of times for one bag. I mean, I think we're talking roughly 15 minutes to 20 minutes or so just for one bag. Okay. Then it says like this, you have an alternate approach. What's that? Uh, you do the first things the way you're supposed to do it. And instead, uh, the first part, uh, it just says, alternatively, for step three. It doesn't identify which step three is. Let me see. Is step three should be... Um, I'm not sure what step three is. Maybe it's... To, oh, the step three is that you don't have to... Um, yeah, you don't have to examine the water in the light box. That, that's step three. Instead, you could take a 50 micron mesh cloth. How many of you have 50 micron mesh cloth, cloth sitting in your house right now? Raise your hands. I don't see too many hands. Yeah, because most almost nobody has this in the house. You take that and put between two colanders. You have to have two colanders, whatever you call, pronounce it. You have to have two of them, and you put this in between the trap what's going to flow down. Then you place the berries in the colander under a heavy spray of lukewarm water from the sink while shaking the berries. Then you filter the water into the colanders through the mesh, and then you remove it and you inspect the mesh cloth on a light box. So either way, you've got to have a light box. I don't know how many of you have light boxes. I don't know how many of you have 50 micron mesh. I don't know how many of you have the time to do this for your goji berries. So the OU says they recommend that you do this, even if it has an OU on it. So this really started me thinking about the whole topic, that if you say on the package, OU, OK, Kuf K, Star K, CRC, uh, anybody you think of, Badatse, the Haredes, anybody on the, on the, what does that mean? Does that mean I don't have to do anything? What does that mean that I might have to end up getting out a light box and a 50-pound mesh cloth and spending 25 minutes preparing my supper, my nosh? So that, that, what does it mean when it says it on the, on the package? So this, was, this opened up a whole area that I'm working on, and, and it, it's, it's fascinating because if, if you scratch the surface, you'll find out that most of the conscious agencies will admit that they have to... Uh, th that they do expect the consumer to be savvy about insects in general, aside from what their hashkoch is. We understand, I mean, when it comes to, uh, let's say, for example, uh, let's take lettuce. So when you have lettuce, so everybody knows either you did a tremendous job at the plant or I got to do it in my house. Everybody understands that. So some of the things say there, um, you have to wash it. Some of them say you have to go through a little procedure before you can use it. Some of them say, ain't sarich bedika. We did everything for you. Okay, I understand that with lettuce. 
But how does that work with nuts and dates? How does it work with goji berries? The assumption of the people in the street, you and me, is that if it says a hashkacha on it, that means it's good to go, good to eat. If I get a platter from a store that has a hashkacha on it, my that's the fruit platter or nuts and 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 and, and dried fruit. My assumption is I can eat it. Why else are they giving it to me? Or I have a store, and the store sends a, a basket of fruit. I'm not expecting to take wash that fruit <laughs> that, that's laid out in a beautiful way on a, on, a, on a tray, and I'm going to take that all off and wash it and put it back on the tray again. Nobody's going to do that. So the assumption is it's ready to go. So that something had to be done in the store. Now, is that accurate? So I would have thought, yeah. The hashkacha takes responsibility. Now I see that at least in this one particular thing, the OU is telling us that even though it has the OU on it, you've got to go through this whole procedure. So I contacted the OU, and I spent a little time on it. I'm not going to go to the details. The bottom line is they're pulling the OU on this product. In other words, the future packages of the goji berries will not bear an OU. So even though it says over here they recommend da-da-da-da-da-da, it's much more than that. You have to either go through all these procedures or you can forget about goji berries, dry goji berries today from any hashkocha that I know of. Maybe somebody will come up and they'll say, I take care of it, fine. Or I have the best drying facility in the world and I don't have any problems. I don't know. But right now, as far as I know, no hashkocha takes responsibility for their goji berries. We, whether you see the OU or the OK or the Kafka or Star K or anybody on there, they have disavowed, as far as I know, they've disavowed responsibility for it. Could be there's one of Kashra's agency or two that still are going to make hashkacha on goji berries and maybe they're saying they're getting it from a good plant with a drying process. I don't know. But I, I know that everybody that I've seen in print, everyone that has come across my desk has said, we disavow of responsibility for goji berries. That's it. But the but the confusion is that we have to understand that this technically, how many announcements did you find about goji berries? Maybe you saw one or two. Did you know that everybody's dropping their ashkocha on it? And even if you have it on the package in the store, in the Froom store here in, in, in Brooklyn or in Lakewood, that it really is not certified anymore? But we don't know that? Now, they didn't pull the plug on the hashkacha. They're going to try to take it off the packaging. It won't see, you won't see it soon. Uh, this is the gray area. So I spoke to another agency, also just today, very, very interesting, and because I'm you know, sending out emails to different agencies asking them their policies. So one of them answered me very clearly. Listen, in general, our policy is that anything that has our symbol on it, you could eat. And we are very strict about that. In other words, we won't give it on this, we won't give it on that, unless we sign off that it's good. He said, but one thing i got to tell you, I'm having a problem with dates. He said, we're finding in dates, and it's good for people to check with dates. And we have Ashkocha on the product, and we would want them to check the dates. And we're struggling with this problem right now, which means that he admits that even though his sashkocha is on the packaging, he would prefer that you would check your dates. 
so Rabbi, why don't say write it over there? Change because it. that will kill the business. Uh, uh, the stores don't want it. The companies don't want it, and they fight the hashgachos not to do that. Okay, because you know it's really scary. I know, I know now in, in Tubish, but I know that certain certain hashgacha gave hashgacha on 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 platters, you know, and the other hashgacha said no, you cannot you cannot put it. Just take it out. Right and. You know, people are naive. You know, really, we, we people want to, you know, just see Ashgaha sign. Unfortunately, what I think, what I'm saying is, this is what I'm saying to my listeners now. I don't think I can write any of what I said today. I really don't expect to write any of the, what I said today. But in, in on this show, I'm saying that when you see a Ashgaha, don't lose your mind. As as the way Rabbi Victor Melissa teach us from the Gemara, you don't lose your Yerush Shemayim even when you're standing in front of a Talmud Chacham. Uh, you, you, uh, you, you, don't lose, you don't give up your own brain no matter who is on the other, facing you. No matter who is facing you, keep your own brain. When you see Ashkoch on a product and you say, very interesting. I don't know how they do this. They say it's kosher. And I... I I was always told you're supposed to do checking uh, 10% or this or that, or check every one of them. And they say it's a hashkacha. So does that mean that so they must have taken care of it? Don't give up your own brain. If you know that there's a certain amount of possibility in the field, that there's a, there, there's a, there's a, 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 a significant minority of time, maybe not a, 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 a but if there's a, a good chance that there's a problem, don't give up your own brain. Go ahead and make your own little padikas. That's what, that's what Hazal wants you to do. You don't say that, oh, they must have taken care of it. If it's a simple, simple, yes, they took care of it. If it's something impossible, they just did. They tried to do what they could do, but it doesn't mean you should give up your own Yerushalayim, your own fear of heaven. And therefore, I say, if the, you see it in the booklets that they say to check this way, this thing, to do that, uh, the Tubishvat, all the Kashmir agencies gave out some kind of rules, take whomever you like. There's maybe a half a dozen different Kashmir agencies gave out different lists of, of, of fruits, vegetables, and, uh, and, and nuts, and told you how to prepare them. So read it. That's what you have to do, even if it says a hashkocha on the label. That's what, we, that's what we're saying today. Yes, some hashkocha agencies are very, very careful and try not to put anything out with their name that needs any bedika. Yes, there are agencies like that. But on the other hand, from when I've scratched the surface... Kashrus agencies in general are saying, yes, there will be times that our, that, that our symbol there does not represent a, uh, a heter to eat this food without any badika. In other words, we have to think about badikas, the things that we're concerned about, potentially problems with insects, even on the foods that have hashgacha on the label. That's, that's what we're coming away with today. And that's all of topic number one, which I didn't even think it would take so much time. Now, the next topic is very dear to me. That, 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 that wasn't. <laughs> I, my, my guts is in that story that I just told you over here. But let me uh, t- share with you um, something that 
I really, really would love to give you all of the information, but I would be over a lot of the virus. It would, it would border on lush and horror. It, there's no way out of this one. So I, I'm, but I'm going to give you a little bit of an idea. There's a gentleman that I know very close with him. And he sent me three emails, which contain in it about 30 different emails from six different people in three different countries. Actually, just two countries, I think. Uh, well, information from three countries, but only two countries. And it's a lot of discussion back and forth. And it's all about the topic of Yoshin. And one of the reasons that I was so intrigued by this is because Mr. Herman, I love Shalom, you could say, couldn't say Zatzal, probably. But Mr. Herman, Yosef Herman, who ran the a Guide to Chadash and the Chadash Hotline for so many uh, decades, helping out tens of thousands of people who are trying to be a, fulfill Yashin. He passed away a few weeks ago. And we wrote a little thing about him for the Conscious Magazine. I was, I was close with him, not, not that close, but close enough that we had quite a few conversations. And I had a little input on some of the things that he did in, in, in the area of Yashin. And Mr. Herman was part of this whole discussion. And some of the emails were from him because it's very recent, this whole discussion. It was about one particular product that's produced in one country and sold in another country. And the discussion took place in a third country. So it was a phenomenal discussion back and forth. And I have all of this information. And I, I can't do anything with it. But I can give you a little bit of an understanding. First of all, the bottom line is in Kasha's magazine. Kasha's magazine is the only place you'll find the bottom line. But I won't, you, won't fill the, you won't be able to fill in the gaps because I kept it. Uh, what I'm talking about now is not clear enough from the, the, the entry in Kasha's magazine. But I'm the only one who has going to have the bottom line on this. So the Yushin thing, which is, is so interesting, uh, it had Mr. Herman. And then after he passed away, another Jew in another country who had shaykhs to Mr. Herman picked up the gauntlet and was dealing with this, this Yushin problem and saying what Mr. Herman held. And he mentioned a line. I'm sorry I didn't uh, find it when I was looking today to, to, to give it to you, but it's, in the, it's lost in all these emails. I can find it, but I just it wasn't spending extra time. He said he quoted that Mr. Herman and he had discussed this topic a few hours before Mr. Herman died. It was, it was freaky to read this. And then I'm looking at it and I say, Yes, Mr. Herman died, but this other Jew who lives in a different country picked up the topic and is working with it to preserve Yoshin's status. It was a beautiful thing. It was, watch, it was like watching a, a, a presentation from HaKadosh Baruch Hu of how this led to that, led to that. The way we see these miracles occurring without realizing from memories that, you know, we, we already started. So it's already uh, Adar, even though it's not Adar, it's Adar Rishon, not Adar Shani. We didn't do them. I can do the Megillah now. But 
in the Megillah, you look at the Megillah and you see an amazing thing. Everything happens and nobody knows why it's happening. And only in the end does it all come together. It looked, it looked crazy. This is happening, that's happening. Look, all the things are happening. And the threats and, and the death of Vashti and, 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 and Esther gets in and nobody can figure it all out. And then it all comes together in a second. That's how Kaddish Barker worked it out. And I'm reading this discussion. Six different people discussing with each other in different ways. All about the Yoshin status of one product in one country that's made in a different country. And it ties into three different countries altogether. I'm not going to tell you how. And, and Mr. Herman isn't here, but somebody else from a different country who had connection with him just before his death is picking it up and defending Yashin's status and affecting a change in how we, information that we have about that Yashin status today in these different countries, three different countries. Amazing. Absolutely amazing story. And uh, it, it, just, it just shows how Klai Yisrael works together. It shows Mr. Herman was involved in something very, very important. And even though he died, his work is going to go on. I've spoken with a family. The, the guy to Kharish will continue. I don't know how exactly it will continue in the future, but it will continue next year. There's his work is not over. He may not be here, but the work will go on. And his accomplishments are here, and even some of the, his, his thoughts and his ideas and, and, and his questions, that all have a life. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece. I wish I could share it with you. Anyway, that's number two. Now, a third, this is a great story. I, I don't even know what to tell you about it because it's, it's, it's absolutely wild. The next story I'm going to tell you, I still don't understand it myself. Here I am, somebody calls me up, Rabbi Wickler, I have a problem. There's a store, uh, it's, it's selling product. Um, there's no mashkiach there. There's no Orthodox Jew there. There's no Jew there. It's only non-Jews. And I don't know which hashkacha it's under, and it's selling it to people in my neighborhood, and, I, and I'm passing here, and I always see this, and I don't know what's going on. It just started a couple days ago. So I looked into it for him. He was convinced that it was a certain rabbi, and we contacted that We tried to reach that rabbi. That rabbi um, wasn't available, and then we were investigating where the product is coming from. And we called one place, and they said, oh, yes, it's ours. So we figured that rabbi is going to do the certification because we don't know who the rabbi is doing the certification. And we're checking it back and forth, and finally we find out who the rabbi is who gives the certification. And we send him an email. I tried to call my phone a few times. It wasn't successful. I got an email out to him. You know, nobody was in the place. The place was open for business. An entire day went by. He was not there. There was nobody. And the sign says, Mashkiach Timidi. And there was not an Orthodox Jew, a non-Jew, on the, in the facility the entire time this other person was there. Nobody. And it's a sensitive thing. The, the things that they're selling are very sensitive. The Bishal Akum situation, uh, 
things that need simonim, and it's nothing, zero. And it's not a regular story either. That's interesting too, but I can't go into that, that prod. I don't want to give away who this is. So you have a crazy situation. We don't know who's responsible. So then the rabbi from the Kashi's organization, who is the one who's certifying this, gets back to me and he says, everything's fine. I know the fellow, it's great. And I said, but he never showed up. The whole day, he wasn't there. So he, says, so he emails me back, no, I spoke to him, he's always there. <laughs> Maybe he went to the bathroom. That's what he wrote. Maybe he went to the bathroom. The workers said, he's not here today, he's not coming today. They are open for business. Now, he might have come in maybe in the morning and turned something on. I don't know. But whatever he did, he wasn't there. And the word mashkiach tamidi is being used in the most ridiculous fashion. So this is the reality. I remember one rabbi, he's no longer living, so I've been very careful how I discuss this thing with, it, with, with you. But I was there the first day a certain store opened up here in Flatbush. The first day, I didn't go in. I was outside. And the rabbi comes out and greets me and says, would you like to go around and see the place? I said, okay. So he showed me around. He said, I just came. I'm looking into it too. This is 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the first day. The first day of operation, he came at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The man had been had his store open since 10 o'clock in the morning. It was a, a, a restaurant functioning since 10 o'clock in the morning. The rabbi showed up for the first visit at four o'clock in the afternoon. And he told me, showed me things. He said, well, I told, I found this here. So I told him you can't use that. And he showed me around. I said to myself, Is, am I, am I hearing correctly? Opening day. You know, I don't know if you know anything about the fishing business. But people who like to fish, they have to go out April 1st. I believe that's the beginning of the trout fishing season. And if it's not, it's near then. And if you're in the game, if you really, really care about trout fishing, then you're out there on April 1st, maybe at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, and it doesn't matter what happened last night. You're going to be out there. You've got to be there opening day. The rabbi's taking money from this store and supposedly giving Ashkocha to you and to me, and he doesn't show up until 4 o'clock in the afternoon on opening day? What, does he care about us? Does he care about us? Does he care about kosher? He said, he took things out. He found problems. He could have taken those things out before they were used. Instead, he's taking them out after they were used. And he's showing off to me that he took it out. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. How can you do such a thing? But I never said it to him because I didn't want to make him feel better. He invited me in to show me around. And this is where he does things. At least I, at least in my brain, I registered. I, now I know what this guy does. And that, that's how, that's, that's how uh, his hashkocha was op- obviously operating. But I see another one. The rabbi wasn't there opening day. That's for sure. He didn't have his own personal mashkiach the opening day. He has, supposedly has a mashkiach there to me, but nobody can find him the second day of the operation. 
There was a first day and a second day. We're talking about the second day. The second day, the place is open. No one is there. And we have a mashkir tamidi. I mean, please. I don't know what mashkir tamidi means anymore. I really don't get it. Skip the tamidi. Just say mashkir available on call. <laughs> mashkir on call. What is this thing of mashkir tamidi and you can't find the man? It, does, it doesn't make any sense. But this is, this is part of the story which just took place. And I haven't finished it yet because I still want to get back to the people who told me that there was nobody there. And I want to make a confrontation between them and the rabbi who claims that the mashkiach, who was a good, who good uh, he's close with that mashkiach because the mashkiach grew up in his synagogue where he's the rabbi and he, and he knows him and he knows the family and he believes him. And we're going to have to have a confrontation because there, there's no way that he can, he can claim that he was there that day when he wasn't. That really concludes the majority of what I was supposed to going to work on today. I did bring a few other things to talk about, and, I, and I'm going to share them with you. There's a, oh, I want to tell you one, one, one quickie here. If I can find it, I'll have to get it later on. If we have, we see it again, there was one quickie. No, you don't really even need that. But it's a product in Israel that has an unauthorized um, badatz mahadrin. Badatz mahadrin is Rabbi Rubin from Rehovot. It's a it's a new unauthorized product. It's from it's uh, the company is called Goren, and they make uh, sunflower oil. And the sunflower oil has his oshkocha, but it's unauthorized. Okay, that's, just, that's an aside. Now, the next topic I want to talk about is nori. The material that I'm going to share with you comes from the recent ACO convention, which took place in uh, December here in Manhattan. I don't know if you remember that day with the, the snow. You remember that snow? Or that the, uh, the, you know, the New York City said it would be uh, an inch or two? And it turned out to be six inches, and the whole the whole city was uh, the whole city was uh, unable to move. Well, I was one of those people who was unable to move. We were going back from uh, by car. We were going back from the ACOC meeting in Manhattan, and it took us to get to Brooklyn over three hours to get from Manhattan, and not only Manhattan, the bottom of Manhattan, Eleven Broadway at the OU offices. To get to Brooklyn and Flatbush took us three hours. And it was a harrowing experience. Almost, cars almost collided about 30 times. It was crazy. Anyway, so at that meeting, the Rabbi Tenler was discussing, that's the Shalom Tenler from the Star K, was discussing an interesting thing about the Nori. I, I hope you understand that Nori is that uh, when you have a sushi, if you have a sushi, I have never eaten a sushi my whole entire life. If you have sushi, usually it's wrapped in nori. That's the seaweed. So there's two problems with the nori. One is a bishalakum issue, which may or may not be an issue. And the other one is a uh, the question of the insects. So for years and years and years, I was aware about nori having a problem. And I saw videos of it, so I even know how it works, and it was explained to me the problem. See, nori is seaweed. And what you do is you take a little bit of seaweed and throw it into the ocean, 
and a netting, and the netting supports the seaweed, and it grows. Don't ask me how it grows. I'm sure people sixth and seventh grade, eighth grade can explain it to you, but I don't really know too well how it works. But after a while, a month or so, you have a whole big sheet of nori, uh, a whole big sheet of seaweed when you had a little piece before, and that's how it goes in the water. So and then you pick it up, and you take it up, and then you use it. Because you dry it and check it. Okay, fine. So when it comes up, it seems that the, you have problems with shrimp and other horse. Uh, they, they, also, they also have seahorses. Those shrimp and seahorses, little crustaceans, they grow, they, they, sorry, they eat the seaweed. They love it. So they're found on there. And then when you pick it up, you got it with you. Then they're drying it out and processing it. And they don't always catch these things. So what they have big sheets of nori, and they check it somehow through a light uh, box or a light facility. And they use they use uh, technical means and 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 people actually examining it, and they're relying mostly on goyim, etc. Now there are a couple of kosher companies. One real kosher company that I know that from Mitrilevyad Sof, the company actually owns the operation. But a lot of these other people are just buying it like. A lot of the vegetables and things we get, people are just buying from others. So the nori is a major problem, and we always said not to use all nori. You have to have only from specific hashgachas that we took the thing very seriously. The problem is it got worse. It got, I don't, I, exactly why we're going to see a little bit more now, but it got worse, the insects. So let me read to you a little bit about it. Rabbi Tenler explains how the the process of the development of the seaweed. I don't know how much we need that, but um, here's what it says. Algae spores begin growth on oyster shells. Oh, but that doesn't really matter, I suppose. I don't think it's a problem with it uh, because it's just a place. And eventually get transferred to seeding cords, tanks, and finally to large sheets of netting, which is what I told you before. The netting is transferred to the ocean in the fall, where it grows further. Then they harvest it after one to three months, and they harvest it by the boats which shave the seaweed off the nets. They just pick it off the nets. The same net can be harvested a number of times during the season, which ends at approximately March of each year. And that's important for you to hear. There's a beginning of the season, which is, he told us, uh, in September. And it ends in March. Toward the end of the season, shellfish begin growing near the nets and they feed on the nori, such, such that nori from the end of the season, around March or February right now, will contain more shellfish than seaweed harvested in December or January. So you have to get I mean, ideally, you're going to get stuff that has started earlier where you have less uh, insects there, and then you have a better shot at getting it cleaned out and checking it out, etc. Then there's a drying process. The seaweed is washed, shaped, pressed to remove moisture, and then dried twice in ovens. Some factories, particularly in Japan, have electric eyes which scan the sheets for imperfections. An insect is called imperfection, and other things that would be imperfections. The sheets are sent to a second factory where they're roasted and toasted briefly two times. So there's two, um, two dryings and two roasting toastings. Okay.
At the roasting facility, there also may be an electric eye, and seasoning might be applied as the sheets pass through the first roaster and the second. Nori is, nori is primarily farmed in East China Sea uh, by Japan, uh, China, and South Korea, three countries that handle it in the East China Sea. There is a direct relationship between price and quality of nori. South Korean nori is cheapest and the lowest quality. Chinese is in the middle, and Japanese costs 25% more than the others, but has a finer texture, a better color, and a better taste. Quality is measured by standard metrics and is not related to the level of infestation. So we're not talking infestation. When we said that the the Chinese is, uh, you know, we said um, we said that the uh, the South Korean is the cheapest, and then the Chinese, and then the Japanese. That's only dealing with other things, but not insects. You get a bad ones here and bad ones there. This the, I'm reading now. This is from December presentation at the ACO. This year and last, there were infestations in the seaweed coming from China and South Korea. And that led to recalls of certified products. You got that? In other words, people were putting out with the hashkocha on the, on the, on the uh, seaweed and had to pull the product and say, oh, we don't assume responsibility, even though it has a symbol in it. So that takes us back to the first discussion we had tonight, which is that what does it mean when you see a symbol, how much... Uh, has that Tashkocha taken responsibility for what you see? Well, in that case, they obviously pulled Tashkocha right away. And like we're now, uh, goji berries, basically everybody has pulled their Tashkocha on goji berries. And even if you run out now and get something with Tashkocha on it, you could basically just say it's not kosher and you shouldn't be using it. So if you have any in your house, I wish you good luck. If you want to follow the OU's procedure, it's going to take you a half an hour or less or more, and you have to go out and get your 50, 50 micron mesh or get, and get your light box and get busy with the whole procedure. It's all on the OU website. Now, some factories scan each sheet with an electric eye, which finds these imperfections. The company's goal in performing these scans is to find holes, rough edges, and foreign objects where trapped in the nori. Well, that's insects too. Depending on the sensitivity setting, the electric eye might be able to reject sheets that have shrimp in them. But a mashkiach must remain vigilant that the settings are not changed because it's easier to get it through the... ...and that the sheets rejected due to infestation the good pile by the employees. They don't want to have so much rejects, so they put it back in to work it over again. Maybe it'll pass the second time. It's Because it, they can't pass what, what was rejected. It's also noteworthy that sheets that are rejected by the electric eye might be used in shredded nori. This is crucial. Shredded nori. And this means that the product is more likely to have insects than regular nor sheets of nori. So don't use shredded nori. I don't care what it costs. <laughs> it's a bad bet. Very bad bet. At the first roasting, nori becomes transparent enough to be suitable for checking. Checking is done 
by putting the nori onto a light box, we're talking about now for our purposes, and by also shining light on the top of the sheet. Since sometimes the sheet is, is such a dark color that the light doesn't penetrate. Then they talk about seasoning. We don't need all that. And Bishi Yisrael, I'm going to skip because I think uh, it's not no get too much. And, uh, it, it, you know, people eat it raw. That's the question with Nedel Hachai. Okay, I'm not going to get into that one now. How much time do I have? I have another 15 minutes. So that's just about the right time, hopefully, to handle this piece. What I'm going to read to you now is from Rabbi Yisrael Reisman, Rosh Yeshiva Torah Das, and the Rav of the Agudas Yisrael of Madison. Now, Rabbi Reisman spoke to us at the ACO, and he spoke at the Aguda Convention, um, and uh, in both cases he said the same drusha, and he applied it a little differently in each case. And so I think it, it's, a, it's something that's very, very special, and anyone who's never heard it before would enjoy hearing it. But if you heard it before, so I'm going to wish you a good night. <laughs> it's, it's, this is from Rabbi Yisrael Reisman, so since it was a public thing, I don't have any problem reading it. When I worked for Art Scroll in the 1990s, they were, be, they, they were beginning the development of the Schottenstein Shas. I found it amazing to recognize that Art Scroll is essentially a kolel with offices. Everyone was involved with Lima Tyra. I experienced a similar sentiment when I walked the halls of the OU, we saw the, uh, the uh, ACO, the Association of Cashless Organizations, and see Svarim pod on the desks. And the, really, that is true. <laughs> The robot, everyone over there is a rov. Everybody, you know, I mean, not the secretaries. No, 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 no secretaries are rabbis. I can guarantee you. But everybody else who works in the office is a rabbi, with one or two exceptions. I know maybe I know maybe two or three exceptions. But uh, I mean, of course, and there's some business people there. But basically, everybody who's in kashrus is a rabbi, and they do know this for him. And Baruch Hashem, at the OU, you have very, very, very knowledgeable people. That I can, I can guarantee you. <laughs> when Klai Yisrael complained about the mon and asked for meat, Hashem said, I'll provide you with an abundance of meat until you're sick of it. When Klai uh, uh, but Bali Machshava explained, people who, who, who think Machshava's uh, Yisrael, in other words, uh, Hashkafa, Explain that a tanug timidi, something that you always have, like eating this meat constantly, a constant pleasure is not really a tanug. It's not really a pleasure. The nature of Olam Haza is to constantly seek new pleasures. Klai Yisrael's complaint about the mon was not regarding the taste. It was indeed special. But the, about the fact that it was constant, the mon had lost its novelty. They were used to it. Hashem answered, I'll give you meat as a tonic to me thee. And you'll get sick of that as well. Because a tonic to me thee just doesn't work. The message of providing meat as an alternative tonic to me thee was to demonstrate that the act and pleasure of eating is not the ultimate goal which demands novelty, but just a medium to provide sustenance. It's important to remember that genuine hisachtus comes from gaining, uh, I'm sorry, his but something that's new is from gaining new inspiration in Avodah Hashem and not from Gashmius. So Gashmius is not going to make it. In Parshas Akev, 
The Torah instructs Klai Yisrael to remember the challenges in the Midbar relating to the Mon and the difficulty with the fact that their clothing never frayed. Because it never frayed, they were used to it. At first glance, this seems confounding. Shouldn't the provision of a constant food source and clothing be uh, construed as a bracha? If you always have it. I had a gentleman, and not a hardship. Somebody complained to me yesterday. He said, it's the caterers in Brooklyn. They're all at fault. He's gaining weight. <laughs> I said, obviously, it's not the caterer's problem. It's his problem. You know, he, every time he goes to these places, he feels he must press out. And it seems he goes a couple times a week. So I think, uh, you know, again, if it's constant, well, he obviously maybe goes to different places, so it's not constant. <laughs> anyway, he's, the point here is that something to be new, that's exciting. But something that's constant, that's the constant food source and constant clothing, it isn't viewed as a, uh, as a bracha. It's viewed as a hardship. The concept of tanug tamidi can be applied here as well. Wearing the same clothing on a regular basis or unending amounts of meat are examples of a tanug tamidi and indeed a challenge. So having everything you want all the time is boring. That's why we're always looking for something new. The Nasayan was intended to demonstrate the importance of enjoying a tanug from ruchnias and not from gashmias like food and clothing. That food and clothing constantly is not going to be exciting. Okay? Chazal compared Torah to a nursing baby. An infant doesn't tire of having the same meal multiple times a day because he discovers a new taste in the milk each time. When we learn Torah, we should constantly seek new insight and novelty and fight the nature des natural desire to attempt to fill this void with gashmias pursuits. His chadshus, something new, needs to be applied to ruchnias, the spiritual areas as well, to avoid burnout in avodas Hashem. Because it could happen. Some people who, you know, in the middle of this long zman, from Sukkot to Pesach, sometimes in yeshiva they burn out. And boys want to take a vacation. And they go to other neighborhoods. They take, take some time off. Okay, the trouble is in America, there's a midwinter vacation. That's the schools and uh, they have it for the, for the high schoolers. But people in base Medrash shouldn't be taking vacations in the middle of the winter to go some to Florida for a few days just to get a, a break. <laughs> but but, yeah, but that, the problem is you have to find his chachos. You have to find some new excitement in the things that you do. When I started teaching, this is all from Rabbi Yisrael Reisman, the Rosh Shiva Torah Das, and uh, the Rav of the Agudas uh, Yisrael of Madison. He said, when I started teaching, I asked Rapam why some Rabbeim get burnt out, and others stay fresh and energetic throughout their whole career. Rapam explained, successful Rabbeim don't teach Chumash or Mishnayis or Gemara. They teach Talmidim. With such a focus, there's always something new. The Gemara explains that in Mitzrayim, the various davening areas were divided based 
were divided based on trades. The carpenters, they were in one location. The tailors were in another, and so on. Some explain in a humorous fashion that the segregation was meant to discourage conversation in shul, since people are generally hesitant to share information with their competitors. <laughs> My father was a baker. This was the famous Reisman's Bakery. Is, uh, it was Rabbi, um, uh, Rabbi Reisman's father started it. My father was a baker and would often say that his competitors, a, a, I'm sorry, he sees his competitors as his helpers since he can't possibly bake enough for all the kosher consumers. And he meant it. When one of his competitors had a fire, my father offered the use of his bakery during the evening hours until renovations would be completed. If your tanug, if your excitement in life is your business, you'll never be satisfied and always feel threatened by these other people here from the competition. Once we appreciate that Parnassa is not the end goal and the true tanug, in life, and I'm sorry, and the true tanug in life is provided through Torah and Chesed, the business competition won't affect you. If you're not looking at your business as enjoyment, per se, I mean, you should enjoy your work, but you shouldn't look at it as your enjoyment. Look at Torah and Chesed as your, as your enjoyment, and then uh, you won't feel frustrated and, and, and burn out. Many consumers are very interested in understanding the background of the cautious world. The developing image of kasha professionals is one of tremendous respect for the collective of achievements in this industry, which is really true. I mean, where we went in the, in the time that I'm watching kashas, it's changed 150%. I remember where it was in the old days, the way there was minimal supervision, minimal knowledge of ingredients, uh, minimal commitment, it was uh, it, it was a far cry when I, from where I grew up here in America to where it is today. But doesn't mean the job is finished. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> Competition among Hesherim is a challenge. Unfortunately, I have yet to hear of individuals in one cautious organization refer to another organization as my helpers. <laughs> the respect for cautious organization will be greatly enhanced with the absence of a competitive atmosphere. I beg everyone in Kashmir to get your tonic from your accomplishments in Ruchnius and stay away from competition, thereby retaining the respected image you have created. So in other words, a little, a little uh, opportunity for everybody to improve. Uh, Rabbi Reisman is saying to us that... Uh, we shouldn't be competing in the conscious organizations and it'd be nice if we could consider each other as uh, helpers and working together. I want you to know uh, Rabbi Reisman is part of the, uh, the conscious world because he works together on the Kahila conscious here in Flatbush, but uh, he's not uh, on a day-to-day -day involved in, in conscious. I see Baruch Hashem, that the workings of the cautious organizations, even though they are competitors, is much closer than you imagine. I was just talking today to one of the heads of one of the big five organizations, and we were talking about exactly some of the things that I mentioned today, and we, and we talked about how we could go together forward as a, as a group organization and how the cautious organizations could work together 
on some of the standards about, let's say, the goji berries, that there should be some kind of universal stand from all the cautious organizations at once instead of confusing us by coming in one day one drops and one day another does another another says this thing another says that thing let's sort of be one of one mind it would be so much better for the community and that's something that the cautious agencies are going to work for which too so uh, you know a lot of these things that we say you know that they feel competition yes there is competition and yes there's a lot of money in cautious but on the other hand that made tremendous strides. I don't know if you know, we've mentioned it here on the radio, I don't know if you know it, but the conscious organizations, the major ones, have worked together to create a, an accepted group one that all of them subscribe to. A group one means it doesn't need any certification, doesn't need any rabbi doing anything. It's something you could pick up and just buy from anybody. There are such ingredients. I'm not gonna give you a list of them now, and it's not just five or 10. It's quite a big list, but that's something that they all hammered out. They had meetings again and again and again and again, and they hammered it out. They have standards on, uh, on insect infestation, which they hammer out also. So yes, the conscious agencies are in competition, but they are working together very closely. This was a special thing that he was sort of giving us a little, uh, more, of a little more push to go in that direction. But yes, the, the truth is that the simcha of Chaim is going to come from Ruchnius and not from the, the Gashmius. And uh, when, you, when you constantly have the, 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 the Tam of the Mon again and again and again, it can get a little challenging. And people do have to look for something new, whether it's in their learning or in the, their chesed and all the areas of life. So that concludes for today, and I, until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine, and I would, if you want to reach me during the week, you can do that at 718-336-8544. If you'd like to get the Kashrus Magazine, you'd like to see a sample copy, you'd like to get the every month, you'd like to uh, find out about our website, thekashrusmagazine.com. Um, any cautious questions or suggestions for the show, you can reach us at 718-336-8544 or kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. Until next week, this is Rabbi Yosef Wickler wishing you a wonderful week and a good Nechodesh.